So I had the distinct pleasure of introducing my friend Mark Kinzer, who will be speaking. Mark is, um, has his doctorate in Second Temple Judaism. So that's the uh, period of uh, Judaism around the t era of the New, New Testament when Judaism really uh, came into existence. Mark's going to talk about a Jewish approach to scripture. Mark and I go back to high school. We went to Henry Ford High School together where we were carousing around and we, we've, we, we reconnected with our respective faith traditions um, uh, shortly after uh, high school uh, when we were up here at the University of Michigan. And Mark is now a, essentially a Jewish scholar and rabbi. He uh, founded a congregation in town called uh, Zera Avraham. You can look it up online. It's a fascinating place. And um, he's just a really good teacher. And I, I like the books he's written, post-missionary messianic Judaism. And he's got a, a book coming up uh, uh, in, uh, very shortly that is interacting with one of my uh, favorite theologians of a sort, uh, N.T. Wright. So uh, that's it for all of you like scholars. Kinzer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Mark, come on up and uh, talk to us. pleasure to be with you this morning. And uh, as Ken said, he had asked me to talk about a, a Jewish approach to scripture. And my hope is that uh, this is more than just like an anthropological study of some uh, exotic tribe somewhere. <laughs> uh, it may end up being that. Uh, but my, my hope is that somehow you'll find something here that you can actually connect with. When referring to God's revelation to Scripture, uh, the normal term that Jews use is the word Torah. And uh, sometimes uh, that word gets translated law, but really it's an inadequate translation. I mean, Torah literally means something like guidance uh, or in a broad sense teaching the teaching of God the guidance of God for, for God's people and perhaps a, uh, a Christian term that would uh, be somewhat of a correlate might be word or the word of God the words of God and the text that best captures the essence of the way in which Jews relate to the text of Scripture, relate to Torah, is actually uh, a text which speaks about words, the words of God. And of course, it's one of the most important texts also in the New Testament. That is uh, the text from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that uh, Jews often call the Shema after the first word. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is 
a command to love, to love God. But then the way in which that love is to be expressed is in the way in which the people of God treat the words of God. And so this becomes really emblematic. It becomes the, the theme text, really, of, of, of all Judaism. Now I want to talk about three different angles on this text and three different angles, really, uh, of perspective on the Jewish approach to Scripture. I want to talk about Scripture as a sacramental text, which is really equivalent to the notion in Judaism of the written Torah. I want to talk about the uh, scripture as the, the living word, which is really equivalent to what in Judaism is known as the oral Torah. And finally, to the, the, the Torah as a personal directive. And that is equivalent to this very important word in Judaism known as mitzvah. So Torah as written Torah, as oral Torah, and as mitzvah. First, Torah as a as sacramental text. In reading the Shema, in reading Deuteronomy 6, the, the basic meaning has always been clear to Jews, namely that the way in which we express, the way we demonstrate, the way we embody the, our love for God has to do with the words of God and the way in which we meditate upon them, the way in which we, we take them into our heart and into our life. But Jews have all, always had a drive towards the concrete towards the tangible, towards that which can be touched and that which is real. And so, what happened was, this text was also taken in a very literal way. It says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And so, what do we do? Well, we have professional scribes whose job is to write the the words of the Torah, and particularly this text, Deuteronomy 6 and a couple of others, and they, they write it out on a special type of scroll and it's put in a little box and it goes on the doorpost of our house. And when we walk in the house and when we walk out of the house, we touch it and we kiss it. Expressing our love for the words of God very literally through that kind of physical contact with, with the words of God. Similarly, it says you shall have these words on your heart and on your, as, as a kind of emblem on your forehead. So what do we do? Well, we have these two kinds of boxes, you might call them, with leather straps. And in the boxes, we have text from the Torah, including this passage from Deuteronomy 6. And uh, one gets wrapped around uh, the arm, the other one gets placed on the head, and in the morning when reciting our prayers, we are literally putting the words of God on our, on our mind and on our heart. And this kind of, this principle gets expanded into the writing of the Torah as a whole. And of course, the heart of the Torah, the heart of 
God's teaching of God's words for Jews are the first five books of the Bible called the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. When, when we Jews speak about the Torah, that's, and the written Torah, the heart of it really are those books. And so those five books get written out in their Hebrew form on a particular type of scroll, a special type of material. And uh, this scroll becomes really the most sacred object in all of Jewish life. It gets placed in a, in, in, in a chest which we call the Ark, which is parallel to the Ark of, of the Covenant in the Mishkan, in the, 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 the desert sanctuary. And the role of the Torah within Jewish worship, it, it becomes really the centerpiece of all Jewish worship. So on every, every Shabbat service, the heart of the service is not the sermon. The heart of the service is taking out the Torah. And then there's a procession around the synagogue in which the Torah is also kissed, just like we kiss the, the doorposts of our house expressing our love for God's words. And then the Torah is taken out and placed on a reader's table and a lengthy section from the Torah is read. And in fact, we have a, cal a, a calendar, the Jewish calendar, in which the five books of, of Moses are divided up into 52, uh, it's actually somewhat more than that, but basically 52 uh, weekly portions so that we read through the entirety of the Torah every year. So when we Jews encounter the Torah, the words of God, it's something tangible. It's something touchable. It's something kissable. And it's also something that we encounter in the context of our community. Fundamentally, our, our Jews' contact with Torah is something that's experienced as part of the people of Israel, not, not just as an individual. Primarily, Jews' contact with the, the Torah, with the living words of God, is something that, is, that occurs within the life of the people. Of course, pious, observant Jews will also read and study the text at home. But that's preparatory. So they're ready when they come into the life of the community. And when the, the Torah, the sacred scroll, is actually read and they have that contact with it in the life of the community, uh, that's really what they're preparing for. That's when we meet Torah. And it, it's really interesting. In, in Judaism, uh, in, there's a tradition that on the Sabbath, we're really not supposed to think about our needs it's not a time to, to focus on all of the problems that we have and asking God to, to deal with them. But there's really one exception. The exception is when the, the, the Torah scroll is out in the middle of the congregation. And after it's, we finish the reading from the, the, the Torah, what, what we do is we kind of sneak in a prayer for those who are sick. And... The reason we do it is because the sense is that God is present with us as a people now as at no other time in the week. 
because the Torah is right, is with us right in the middle of the life of the people. And so we have to, we simply have to sneak in this, this request <laughs> at this time because God is present to heal, to hear our prayer. It just, again, shows you how the sense of a kind of sacramental text representing the presence of God in the midst of his people, how vivid and how central, how important that is in Jewish life. Final point on this. It's at the very beginning of the Torah procession. As the Torah has been taken out and it's, it's held and, and you have several people in the front of the, of the synagogue, the entire congregation chants the Shema. Because the Shema is understood to be itself, like the Torah procession, like the Torah service, a kind of reenactment of Sinai. A reenactment of this, this, this encounter where God with the, the 600,000 or the million Jews at Mount Sinai is engaged with, with his people. And, and so when we say Shema Yisrael, it's understood we are taking upon ourselves the yoke of God's sovereignty. We are placing ourselves under the authority of God. And, uh, and so, again, we see this connection of the Shema with the, with the Torah here as sacramental text. Well, the second expression of Torah in our midst is Torah as living word. The Torah as a living word. According to one Jewish tradition, the soul of every Jew who ever has lived or will live was present at Mount Sinai. Every, every Jew. And according to this tradition, God reveals something slightly different about the Torah to every Jewish soul. An angle, a perspective, a, 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 a sense of, of, of the truth of the Torah that's real to no other soul. But what that means is the wholeness of the revelation of God in the Torah can only be encountered when the entire people each put in and make their contribution of that which they see, which they behold. And if if that contribution of one Jewish soul is missing, then there's something incomplete about the Torah. Now, what you see here is actually two different things. On the one hand, you get the sense again of the Torah as this living dynamic reality. It's not simply something static. It's not some, simply something that can be uh, propositionally defined. It has a multitude, an infinite number of meanings, an inexhaustible treasure of truth and of wisdom. And, and so new things are always being encountered and discovered and seen there. And at the same time, unless every Jew is in contact with the entire history of all of the other Jews who've ever read the text, then that new thing that you're, you're seeing also, in some ways, is, is, does not bear fruit because it's not connected to the whole that the people of Israel have seen throughout its history. And so, we have this, 
this paradoxical reality in Judaism where there's a value placed on what's called the chidush, the new insight, something seen that's never been seen before. That's not a problem in Judaism. In fact, it's a value to see something, a layer of meaning that has never been perceived within the text. It's expected. And yet, at the very same time, it has to be inserted in the flow of the whole history of the people of God and everything that everyone else has seen. And what we also see here then is this sense that there have to be multiple voices and multiple perspectives. And Judaism has always had this sense. And it gets expressed in part when you look at the strangest holy book that exists in any religious tradition, and that's the Talmud. You ever look at the Talmud? It is the strangest. This really does require a kind of anthropological perspective. Because this is a book that's basically a book of arguments. That's what it is. Now, those of you who know Jewish people, that probably doesn't surprise you. But it's, it's a book of arguments. This perspective and that perspective, disagreements, sometimes they're resolved and sometimes they're not. And they go all the way back to these two schools from the time of Jesus, the, the, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And they disagreed about just about everything. And there's a, a, a wonderful text within the Talmud which is talking about their disagreements. And a heavenly voice, a voice comes from heaven in the midst of the disagreements and says, both these and these are the words of God. But then the voice says, but the halakha, the actual, the way in which you're going to, you have to live these things is according to Beit Hillel. This is the way you have to actually do it. On the other hand, the words of Shammai are just as important as the words of Hillel. And so they are preserved and the, their arguments are taken very, very seriously and not written off because there's truth there too. And so we Jews are not as squeamish as most Christians about prob problematic texts and tensions in, in the midst of Scripture. We, for us, it's a kind of, it's a source of wisdom and of life. It's in, it's in the very points where there's the tensions, the apparent conflicts, the problems, where in fact God speaks to us. You know, uh, so, some Christians might have a problem that it looks like Paul is saying something different than James. A Jewish approach would be to put them right together and say, well, Rabbi Paul says this and Rabbi James says this. You know? And these and these are both the words of the living God. God has something, the words of God are coming to us and we need both of those perspectives if we are going to hear the wholeness, the fullness, the richness of God's word. One of the greatest of the sages, Jewish sages, was a man by the name of Rabbi Akiba. And he was a particularly good at teasing out things from the text of Scripture that nobody had ever seen before. And there's a wonderful story in, in the Talmud about Moses at Sinai. And Moses is looking for some consolation from God. And so God gives him a vision 
in which he's able to look into the future more than a thousand years and see Rabbi Akiba. And Rabbi Akiba is teaching his disciples and he's, 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 the things he's saying are amazing and Moses finds he can't understand a word that Rabbi Akiba is saying. He is totally confused, utterly bewildered. What, what, is, what is this all about? And so one of the students concludes by saying, Rabbi Akiba, how do you know all of these things? And Rabbi Akiba answers, he says, it's because this is the teaching of Moses from Sinai. <laughs> now, we might think that Moses' response then would be to be angry and upset. This, this is a charlatan, you know? I didn't say that. But instead, according to the Talmud, Moses is consoled. He's consoled that, that, that someone as great as Rabbi Akiba, who could see things in the Torah that Moses himself didn't see, you know, uh, that, that someone like that could come along in the Jewish future. Rabbi Akiba saw something also in the Shema that hadn't quite been seen before. It says in the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And that word for soul, nefesh, could also really mean life itself. And Rabbi Akiba's interpretation of that was, though he take my soul from me. And Rabbi Akiba was a martyr at the hands of the Romans. And at, in his final breath, uh, he smiled and his disciples said, why are, you, why are you smiling while you're being tortured? And he said, I finally get to fulfill this commandment from, from the Torah that I would love the Lord my God with all my soul. And so with his final words, he said, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad, and he died. From that moment on, the words of the Shema became the words that every observant Jew seeks to have on his lips as he dies. Here you see a, a, the way in which the Torah gets enriched and expanded. Moses probably didn't think about that when he said, when he wrote those words. But Rabbi Akiva didn't just teach his disciples, he lived that out. And that became established then as this is now part of Jewish life. So the Torah is a living word. Finally, for Jews, the Torah is also a preeminently mitzvah. Really, a very weak translation of mitzvah is commandment. Doesn't really get it. At least uh, by the... Partly because most Christians don't like commandments, you know. Uh, Jews like commandments. We do. They're, they're positive things, mitzvot. But really, it's not something that most Christians particularly appreciate. Mitzvah is the most, one of the most beautiful, positive words in all of Jewish life. Now you can already see from things I've already said to you about the Jewish approach to the Shema, this drive to make things real, tangible, touchable. The fact that when we, the, we, we live out 
the Shema by literally writing the words of God in a scroll and putting them on our doorposts or, or uh, wearing them as we pray. Or the fact that we recite the Shema in the moment that we're dying, God willing. It's also true that Deuteronomy 6 was taken to be a commandment that that very paragraph, Deuteronomy 6, these words should be spoken every morning and every evening. It says when you lie down and when you rise up. These words should be on your heart when you, when you lie down and when you rise up. So the understanding is okay. Every morning and every evening we are to recite the Shema. We're, we're looking for opportunities to find commandments where there weren't obviously commandments present. We are mitzvah hungry. I want to just read you some sections from someone who says it so much better than I could ever say it. Uh, someone I would call the poet laureate of Jewish theology, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel of Blessed Memory. If the frequency and intensity with which a word is used may serve as an index of its importance to the mentality of a people, then the word mitzvah is one of supreme importance. Just as salvation is the central concept in Christian piety, so does mitzvah serve as a focus of Jewish religious consciousness. It is, next to Torah, the basic term of Judaism. Beyond the meanings it denotes, namely commandment, law, obligation, deed, it connotes numerous attributes which are implied in addition to its primary meaning. It has the connotation of goodness, virtue, value, even holiness. When I was growing up, before I knew that the literal meaning of mitzvah was commandment, what I thought it meant was a good deed. Because whenever, like in our family, something really good, you saw someone do something that was a good thing for another person, you would say, that was a real mitzvah. That was a mitzvah. Back to Heschel. The supreme dignity of mitzvah is of such spiritual power that it gained a position of primacy over its opposite, its antonym, namely sin, or the Hebrew Avera. To the mind of the Jew, mitzvah bears more reality and is a term more frequently and more prominently used than sin. In the Christian vocabulary, the frequency and importance of the two terms is just the reverse. Christianity has not taken over the idea of mitzvah. On the other hand, the term sin has assumed the connotation of something substantial, a meaning not implied in the Jewish understanding of sin, avera. Life revolves around the right and the wrong deed, but we have been trained to be more mitzvah conscious than sin conscious. Uh, you know, in, in, in the Torah, it speaks about God's commandments as my commandments, and the understanding that the Jewish tradition has of that is that these are the commandments that God himself observes. You know, this is the, uh, the we are commanded to, uh, to, to care for and visit the sick. God visits the sick. We are committed to, to feed the hungry. God feeds the hungry. And they've 
the sages find texts in scripture, you know, where it shows God doing these things, you know. We are, we are commanded to clothe the naked. God is the one who clothes the naked. And the understanding is that in the doing of the act, you're not just fulfilling some sort of desire or wish that God has. You're entering into partnership with God. You're being joined through the mitzvah into the very work that God is doing in the world. Final comments from Heschel. The goal is for human beings to be an incarnation of the Torah. For the Torah to be in us, in our soul, in our deeds. No one is lonely when doing a mitzvah. No one is lonely when doing a mitzvah. For a mitzvah is where God and human beings meet. The purpose of observance is not to give expression to what we feel or what we think. In giving expression to a thought or a feeling, we delegate to words what we bear in our souls. Expressions are substitutions, vicarious acts. The purpose of observance is not to express, but to be what we feel or think. To unite our existence with that which we feel or think. To be close to the reality that lies beyond all thought and feeling. To be attached to the holy. Every mitzvah adds holiness to Israel. Now I think this, what this approach to mitzvah, where it is close to something I experienced also as a follower of Jesus, was uh, for, for, for Ken and I both in our early years of, uh, of coming to know Jesus. It was the call to discipleship. It was the call to come and follow me that rung in our hearts and our soul. It wasn't just the words, I love you. It was the words, come with me. Do what I do. Be with me. Follow me. And it's that kind of call that's captured by the Jewish notion of mitzvah. In encountering the text of Scripture, we're looking for opportunities to follow God. Scripture is not just a communication of something to us. It's an invitation to enter into the very life of God in the world. So, in conclusion, we Jews, this exotic tribe, approach the Torah as sacramental text, written Torah, living word, oral Torah, personal directive, sanctifying directive, mitzvah. The Torah is God's living gift to Israel. And we cherish it. It's also God's living gift to the church and to the world. As we fulfill the Shema, as we seek to have it be written on our heart, may the Holy One, may the Holy One truly live among us and may we experience His presence through His words. Thank you so much, Mark.
You know, we've been in the sermon series, Making Contact, and I thought it just really added, um, like we're, how we're experiencing God, I thought that really added another layer where we can think about mitzvah. We think about when we're doing acts of justice and acts of kindness, when we're following Jesus into the world, that we're experiencing Jesus in that space, in those acts of kindness as well as in other people. And that's such a beautiful way to look at the world. And man, that part about like everybody owning a piece of the Torah or a part of the revelation of God, could that have been more of like a third way theology for those of you who understand that? It was just really beautiful. Thank you, Mark. I think actually before we have our offering, I think it would be appropriate for us to just take a minute or two of silence. So we try and do that at the end of each sermon just so we give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to be talking to us and be with us. And so I would just invite us to do that. We don't have to have perfect silence. People, babies make noise. We'll just say, Holy Spirit, just come and maybe highlight something that Mark was talking about, Lord, and just make it real and enliven it in our hearts. So just come, Holy Spirit. nudge from the spirit maybe just inviting us to picture Jesus um, saying follow me you know and just maybe ask him like where, where do you want me to follow you this week Jesus, we ask that you would give us eyes um, to see where you're at work in our lives in this next week, that we can experience you, Lord, in all of these different acts of mitzvah. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, empowering us. And we give you all praise and all glory. Amen.